Hi, I'm Mark Scott, Secretary of the New South Wales Department of Education, and welcome to Every Student, the podcast where I get to introduce you to some of our great leaders in education. Today I'm in conversation with John Goh. He's the principal at Maryland's East Public School in Sydney's West, with an enrolment of 370 students. 90% are from a non-English speaking background, and 10% are from a refugee background. I've often commented that John is one of New South Wales' most famous principals. We'll come to that in a minute. How everyone's come to know John Goh. John, how did you come to be principal at Maryland's East? What's your education story? Well, I went to a public school when I was a child. I went to a place called Hornsby Public School. I had an interesting time there. You know, I struggled to learn English because my parents came from a non-English speaking background. Thank my father was a refugee. He came out here in World War II as a refugee. He was interned in a camp in Belimba. And my mother came out here at, um, via the Cultural Revolution from China. But they both instilled values of me, for me about um, social justice, working hard, and what was really important. I used to see my father, in fact. He was a chef. And so I used to see my father... Um, pretty much only on the weekends because he used to leave home at 8 o'clock in the morning, come home at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, and, but he had a good work ethic and something that I think has rubbed off on myself. And, and tell us about your school experience, a challenge learning English. Were you successful at school? Did you enjoy school? And did you think that one day you might be a teacher? I really enjoyed parts of school. I, I remember it was a struggle early on without English. Um, I was quite good at Cuisinier rods. And, but when it came to things like let's make better English, I really struggled. Um, but it was only until later on in my primary school where my English skills um, increased that I really started to enjoy learning and really finding out, you know, there's so much to learn and enjoy things like reading books. And um, and then I went to a school called Normanhurst Boys and Normanhurst Boys wasn't selective at the time. It was um, just a comprehensive boys school and I enjoyed the five R's there, which was reading, writing, arithmetic and running rugby. Absolutely love running rugby. But as I went through that school, by about year 11 and 12, again, I struggled a bit, more so with some teachers. And in fact, I walked out of one, one of my subjects and didn't go back and actually learnt in the library and spent the whole year in the library learning one of my subjects. But at the same time, I had a fantastic maths teacher who loved rugby, loved cricket and instilled different values for me about sport and teamwork and the joy of learning. So I took some lessons away from that, that I can learn if I'm, I have the right motivation. And was there um, parental expectation uh, about the kind of career that you would do? And how did they feel about your desire to return to the classroom? Well, being a ch- from a Chinese background family, the old stereotype cropped up, and that is that, you know, are you going into medicine, computing, dentistry? What are you going to do? And I thought to myself, well, at times I thought I'd like to be a greenkeeper on a golf course, play golf and mow the lawns in the morning and then play golf for the rest of the day. Or um, And then I thought, 
maybe a police officer because they're highly respected, but I never made the height, height regulations in those days. So we landed on this consensus of like, I'll go into teaching. Mm. And where was your first teaching job? My first teaching job was at Newtown. It was at the time where I went looking for casual work in my local area, couldn't find any, so I went in the city and I landed at Newtown Public School and it was at the time where right next door they were building the or refurbishing for the uh, performing arts high school. So I'd be out in playground doing playground duty and the dust from the building site would blow over. Um, but at the same time, I really enjoyed that. And then I start learning it a, a lot more about children and social equity and disadvantage. And then I quickly moved to Stanmore. And then I wasn't there for, at Stanmore for long before I landed at Lakemba, which is 90 was 90-plus percent um, Arabic-speaking background. Did you aspire from early in your career to be a leader of schools, to be a school principal, and did you always have the leadership thing on you? I, I don't think I ever aspired to be a principal. Um, what I aspired to be was a, as good as a teacher as I could be, giving children as many opportunities. I always had a love of curriculum, so one of the my early experiences at Lakemba was sitting in a staff room um, early in the in the late 80s and in the afternoon I'd be sitting there having a cup of coffee and, and finding that there was no one around me because many of the teachers were going off doing postgraduate studies in computers or leadership or PE or something else and I thought, well, I'm missing the boat here. Everyone's out doing postgraduate studies except for me. So I actually enrolled into a graduate diploma of TESOL and then I kept on going, doing eventually doing a Bachelor of Ed and a, and a couple of Masters because I found so much joy in curriculum and learning about curriculum and how we can impact on children's lives. So how did you get to be Principal of Maryland's East? I started looking at the end of, um, in the mid-90s and I ended up at um, met North in those days as the social, uh, as the senior education officer in ESL in those days. And then I kind of discovered what the department was about and how there's so many different types of leaders in the department. And so soon after I finished up there, after two years, I went out to Glen Denning and I opened a brand new school with a fantastic principal named Tony Gorman. And I moved from there um, about five or six years later over to Hebersham and I worked with another fantastic principal named Sue Connell. And again, all in disadvantaged schools, communities, um, with high complexity and I learnt so much from there and I thought, you know, eventually I'll lead a school. And so that opportunity opened up at Maryland's East. Tell me about your first weeks there as leader. Well, the first week at Maryland, so sort of, in fact, the first six months, um, I remember jumping the fence um, during the school holidays because it was in that Easter break where the week before or the last week of term one, I found out I, I'd been appointed to Maryland East during the school holidays. I jumped the fence. It wasn't a security fence there. Walked around the grounds. I thought, where's my, where's my office? Where's, the, where's this? And... 
I'm used to big football fields and suddenly I don't have the grounds and thought, oh, I wonder where I've landed myself in. In the first six months, I walked around the school and many of my de- my one of my deputies will talk about the story. I used to walk around with my arms folded around and I'd be, you know, synthesising what was going on and all I did was, you know, make mental notes about what I'm seeing, what we needed to do, how we can move the school forward. And it was quite an interesting time because the previous principal had taken the school up to a certain point and did a tremendous job in bringing the that school up to a certain point. But at the time, if you remember, we had no Gonski funding. Funding in the department was very limited, so I could understand where, you know, where the school was up to in terms of school resourcing. And it, the school wasn't a disadvantage on the disadvantaged schools program, so it was very limited. So I tried to spend a lot of time in the first six months doing things about the school grounds and learning as much as I can about the community. So how did you work out where to start? If you're walking around with your arms folded, <laughs> making mental lists of everything you want to do, how, do you, how did you know as a leader where to begin and where to have an impact first? The first thing I did was get um, to organise a meeting with the PNC. And the, I remember the PNC came and we sat there and the PNC said to me, um, we've got two types of fundraising, John, your fundraising and our fundraising, and that's it. And I said, hang on, what about doing fundraising together? We'll do some projects together. What are some of the things that you want to happen? And it was interesting, the very first thing they talked about was a room for themselves where they can meet, they can plan, they can do things together. And we found this old um, storage room underneath our one of our buildings and it was stored up with old furniture and things like that. So very early on, it was about building, you know, looking at what, how we can improve the school grounds. So I spent a lot of time um, building things. I took out all the old furniture out of this storeroom and I took my chainsaw that I borrowed from the SES because I was working with the SES, cut it all up, put it in a skip bin, and then once I emptied all that, then I started. we started painting this room and building a community room. And so during that time, I was able to spend a lot of time talking to the parents about their aspirations, what they liked, didn't like about the school. They talked about the grounds. So we spent a lot of time working the grounds I remember I painted the Demarble classrooms on the outside. It was based on my shirt colours, like bright pink and teal and purple. And and, and and it's part of that philosophy that, you know, partnership with the parents, you understood that that was going to be very important to your success at the school? It was the very first credibility I, f- I felt was that I was able to deliver the parent to the parents a community room. Um, up until that point, we talked about it, but not, it hadn't happened. But there are many schools that don't have a community room. Why did you think a community room was important? I think the parent, it wasn't so much about the community room, it was the credibility of the fact that we're going to build this, this is what the parents wanted. It could have been anything. It was more about the fact that the parents now saw someone that's out there practical with a chainsaw, you know, working with the parents, throwing out old refuge, building something, doing up the grounds. And they saw that, you know, um, I've, 
that, you know, I really wanted to be there and to make a real high impact about the school grounds, the way the environment looked, and then start t- talking about the environment inside the classroom mm-hmm. um, after, we, you know, making a whole lot of mental notes of what was going on. One of the things you, you did, and it generated a bit of attention at the time, was change the school starting time and the operational hours of the mm-hmm. school. So how does it work there now and how did that change come about? Well, we started off at two, in 2011 and in 2011 some of the parents said to me, look, you know, we've got this real problem. Our children go home from school, they have to go to sport training and by the time they get home they're really fatigued about doing homework and we end up with fights about homework at the home and our children are really fatigued. And then part of walking around the school, I, I noticed that a lot of the incidents that we had um, stemmed from children being fatigued at lunchtime and, you know, it seemed like I was, you know, doing a lot of student welfare management um, and we were going around this vicious cycle. So the parents said, uh, some of the parents said, well, can we change the times? And I thought, oh, that's not a bad idea, but five minutes or ten minutes wouldn't make a difference. So in 2011, in 2012, on New Year's Eve, I cheekily put a tweet up. As many people know, I use Twitter, and I said, let's have a real crack at school hours, and I want to change the school hours. And this happened on midnight straight after the fireworks while I was on the train home from Circular Quay. But we had already had that conversation, so 2012 was really formalising those consultations and then we had a survey and uh, 72% of the parents wanted to change the school hours, so then we made that decision. You copped a bit of criticism, didn't you? I certainly did. I remember talking to people in the department about it and someone said to me at one at back in that those days you can't set a precedent in the department where's my research evidence um you know how's this going to work and I thought to myself well where's your research evidence at 1828 48 when public education started that nine o'clock was the opportune time and so we, we managed on and I kept my director in the, in the loop at that time. I think I gave him a heart attack and my director at the time was the deputy secretary, Marat Distar. And at that time I said, well, look, let's have see what eventuates. And then the media picked up on it and we ended up on the front page of one of the major papers and we were on talkback radio and and people were sending me messages like people are talking about you. And I got and I thought to Did myself Did you second guess your judgment? Yeah, we we kind of thought to myself, well, we, we might be able to roll this and and we may be able to move this on. But one of the lovely things about it is we kind of knew it was about our context. We knew our community we also knew that our children, some of our children were in the streets in the morning buying bread and came from, and a lot of our children came from Middle Eastern, Asian, European background where historically school started early. So and we, so what time now Yeah, does it start? We start now at 8 o'clock and we finish at 1.15. Yeah. And I've been there at your school in the morning and you just get a sense of families arriving, don't you? <laughs> they all seem to arrive en masse. A lot of the kids walk to the school with their yeah, parents. Yeah. I was a bit worried on the very first day we started because it was about 7.30. I didn't see any children on the playground. 
7.40, didn't see any children on the playground, and then suddenly they all walked in the gate at about 5 to 8, and I thought... Yes, we're right on now. You're half a decade on. How mm. do you view the experiment now? It, many of our teachers w- won't look back because we've got a lot more time to program, plan, to meet uh, at one fifteen. but many of our children go home for lunch now and we've kind of reclaimed a bit of wellbeing time back for our teachers. But at the same time, we're not dealing or spending all our time dealing with um, playground issues because our children are In- not... And have many other moment. schools followed this example? Not that I'm aware of, but I did help Maury East Public School change their times to 8 o'clock. But then, if I remember right, they've shifted back to 8.30 mm. because, again, it's all about their local context, not about my context. So so if we also go to Maryland's East, what, what are we going to see there that is different to other schools, other changes? But no, no bells, no timetable, right? No bells. Um, we took out the bells because we didn't want our parents to be stressed. Uh, I learned that from an independent school that it could happen. But at the same time, we've been changing our learning spaces for quite a long while. Back in 2012, we were working uh, with a tech company and a tech company invited us to a whole lot of other industries. And as we walked around industries, we saw there was a big mismatch about how we were running our school and what our school looked like compared to how people were going to work in the present, but also in the future. And it was none of this um, set furniture. Everyone was walking around, collaborating. Um, There was no bells to regulate their work hours. And people were working in teams. They were working collaboratively, problem-solving, and we looked at what we were doing and there was a massive mismatch. So we had to change our learning spaces, start knocking down walls, opening up spaces, working in terms of team teaching, trying to picture what that would look like, and also trying to start personalising a bit of the learning. That is that it's not one size fits all. And and how do you judge now the success of that uh, initiative? How do you know that those experiments to actually modernise the school learning environment to have a more individual approach is reaping, you know, benefits in terms of the learning outcomes of the children in your care. Well, very early on in the first year we changed the school hours, we conducted a research with um, uh, Dr Linda Graham, who was at Macquarie University at the time, then moved to Queensland, and she conducted a study talking to students and parents and found that our engagement was a lot higher, especially boys in year five and six. In fact, she did a, a survey and found that I think it was something like 60% of our students or the survey students indicate they came to school because of the learning programs, not because of socialisation. In fact, 10% um, 10% of our students said they came to school because of the principal and teacher, and I was really embarrassed. I thought, well, and then someone pointed out, that's teacher and principal, your effect size might be zero. (laughs) So, but it was the learning that really kept to the students, but it was also the fact of letting students follow their passion and we could find and we could start seeing that students from a a non-English speaking background had a lot more skills than we had known. They may not have had the English skills, but they were able to design websites or make videos or um, code up. Um, It was all about access to technology and skills and then 
over the years we've framed a learning framework around some of their strengths. And a strong project-based learning um, commitment at the school? Yeah, more so in the, the upper primary um, because we've never lost focus on the literacy and numeracy, but the project and big projects linking up with industry, um, partnering up with industry is, has been really important to us because we take our children out to industry and they see, children, they see what the workplace is like and then they have a real understanding of why we're doing the things so, we're doing. So let's talk about that. I mean, one of the things the new Gonski report talks about is an increased involvement of industry and business in schools. And I think when most people read that, they would think that's to do with high schools, vocational ed, school-to-work transition. You're taking primary school students to places like Atlassian. Uh, what do you see as a consequence of that engagement, really for 10-year-olds, 11-year-olds at your school? What, it, what we do is we frame up a learning program for our children because it's easy to take children to the Museum of Contemporary Arts or Atlassian or somewhere else. So what we actually encourage our students to do is we actually put out job ads and our children have to apply and write their CV and we have to teach them the writing skills through that and then we we know they're going to get an interview so we train the children in interview techniques. So we're actually doing a lot of learning but we're not formalising like this is English. It's all consumed into like project-based learning and when the children um, end up at these organisations, they see how people work and they see that this place isn't out of access to them, that this is a place that they could be in the future. This is not a foreign place to them. Many of our children will, will, have never been to the Museum of Contemporary Arts and their parents as well. They see the Museum of Contemporary Arts, for example, as, oh, that's a place for other people but not for us. Mm. So now they start accessing these places and they discover all the learnings that could take place, but also the, they learn a lot about the visual arts or about coding or about technology while they're there. One of the interesting things looking at you, John, it strikes me that you're one of those principals who gets out there and does things, um, probably more inclined to ask uh, for forgiveness, not permission from the system. You're kind of strong-minded on the school you want to run and the things that you want to do, and you're not going to leave many questions unasked by that. Do you feel constrained by the system? What what else would you like to be able to do that perhaps being part of the biggest education system in the country doesn't allow you to do? I've always believed that sometimes we have um, policies and 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 procedures and guidelines for 2,000 schools and it just doesn't fit. I go out to country schools and I've been out to some country schools, for example, and I see their the things they have to do for work, health and safety. And I'm thinking there's two teachers in that school, but they've got to do exactly the same as I have in my school, exactly the same as a big school. And yet they've only got two staff members who are on playground duty every day. So I think to my mind, it's all about contextualisation of individual schools because I have a belief that all our schools are great. I just have – I go out and I see wonderful programs where – I often believe is that, you know, I can't wait until the department catches up. Um, 2007, 2008, we put solar panels in our school. We didn't have guidelines there. 
but we went ahead and did it. And now it's standardised technology, but we did our research with industry and we knew what was going on. We've been always on the forefront of going out to industry and seeing what's happening. And sometimes we're playing catch up all the time and I can't wait. However, what I do say is that it's really fantastic um, that more more recently uh, I'm finding that the environment in our department is like, let's have a real go at this. And, you know, it's not a no, it's like, how can we do this? You know, and each school has their own context. Um, and I think that's where one of the things I'm finding really different. The other thing I think it's really important is that when I've got projects, I often find, now I look back, it's like, I wish I could have grabbed the media unit and say, hey, help me, I'm changing the school time. Grab industrial relations, help me, I'm changing this. Grab all these people whenever I'm doing a project and grabbing people. It's the whole concept, you know, there are people there to support me or or the people that are working in schools. And that's what I see in industry. Mm. I see that people break out into teams, do projects, and they might be working for a whole lot of projects, and then they disperse and go and do other projects. And I often found myself thinking, I wish the department would do that. So if I want to knock down a wall, can I grab someone from assets to come and help me do this Um, and make it happen, not to tell me the policy guidelines, but Mm. to say, what the potential of all this could be. So that's where I I think um, I would like to see the department head in terms of the future. But the other thing is also sharing the, the stories. I go out and I see some of the best things that are happening out in schools, but sometimes those stories are never, ever told. You know, um, the school that brings the children into school after so much tragedy or disadvantaged and suddenly they're attending school. And the third thing, I, you know, it's a project I'm going, I like to work on, and that is that I often wonder why we have 203 school days. It's like the old notion that only learning occurs at school. We're having flexible work where people can work at home and, and um, a lot of industry are doing that. I wonder to myself, does that mean learning only occurs at school and we know that's not quite true. So we have year 12 children right now in high schools and many teachers giving up their time and we should be crediting all that. And sometimes I find that we don't credit that type of learning outside of school and we have to break open that model because many children who go overseas are just as much learning just as mm. much as if they're in school mm. if not more so sometimes we we negate the learning that occurs outside of school okay. and we don't reward it one of the uh, one of the reasons you're such a well-known principal as you alluded to is you're big on social media in in a sense i sometimes think your education's example of the truman show you're kind of you've got your life out there online in some respects why have you found it useful to be very active on Twitter the way you are? I think social media brings people together. You can find out things that are happening all around and as, as teachers and educators are sharing on social media and outside organisations are sharing, universities are, sh- are sharing what they're doing, you learn a lot. You learn what's happening in the rural community schools. Um, it, one of the lovely things about um 
the Team Scott and the Premier Sporting Challenge was finding out what was happening at, in the Broken Hill area mm. as the director was posting as he was walking around and showing a bit about Broken Hill or you find out what's happening in a small rural com, uh, remote school or you see a big school, but it's not just our own department school. You're starting to see what's happening in a global world that, you know, and when you start seeing what's happening in a global, you put things in perspective. You don't realise how great our system is in New South Wales and the sorts of things that are happening in New South Wales. Mm -hmm. And But at the same time, you can learn a lot from what's happening. So, John, one of the interesting things about you, I think, uh, knowing you is that you're keen to get good ideas from anywhere. And I know that you engage with school systems around the world, but you also here in New South Wales, you'll engage with independent school principals and Catholic school principals. And what's your rationale and your engagement with other schools and other systems? Look, I think there's two types of issues here. One is the funding debate, and I'll get involved in the funding debate, but take the funding away um, debate away for a minute, one of the things is really looking at education systems, whether it's independent, Catholic or all around the world, and seeing what we can learn from them, what principles we can discover. So, for example, you know, I go into some of the independent schools, you know, I I've refereed rugby there, I've seen some of the resources, and, but deep under, I'm more interested in how they're engaging their students. So, I can see different things to do with STEM or I can see the way they operate their sporting programs. But I'm really interested about what they're learning and what's underpinning that learning, not so much about the the glitz and of the funding and everything else. I'll have that debate in my own personal way on Twitter or wherever, but it's really about working together and learning from each other. And I see that quite a fair bit. In fact, it was happening a lot, um, you know, or started to happen with things like Teach Meet where we all get together um, from independent Catholic schools and we share practices with each other. Or, um, and I think that's the way, you know, we can harness up the energy of education, but also take back the agenda from governments. And, and just a, a final question. I mean, there's research that's, you know, widespread that the demands on a principal are very, very significant. And, you know, that longitudinal study on work intensity says that, you know, principals suffer from long hours. It's an exhausting, demanding, remorseless job in some respects. As I follow you on Twitter, I, you know, follow your interests as a rugby referee. For a long time, you're a member of the uh, State Emergency Service. How important are things outside school to keeping you fresh and on top of your game at school? Doing that things outside of school actually en enriches what you do inside of school. So, for example, um, you know, when the tree order came out, it wasn't a hard thing for me to do because you know, I've been living Cut down with a lot tre of trees, yeah, a lot of trees. Or, um, you know, when we're talking about instructional leadership, you know, I'm spending a lot of time coaching referees right now. We videotape referees, um, we analyse their game, we ask some questions. So you bring in outside experience into school. Schools. And I think one of the things to look at in terms of, I feel as a principal, is knowing when to switch off and switch on, knowing what's important, what to outsource, but at the same time, realise what are the most important things that take place in a school. 
my worst day at school, if I have a really, you know, stressful day, changes, you know, when I walk down to kindergarten or year one and listen to your, a child read or see a piece of their writing and just talk to them a bit about their writing, my whole outlook changes because it gives me more perspective about what's really important. I might miss all those deadlines, but this is the most important thing for me right here and now. It's about what's in front of me, not what's happening in the school school or down the road or anything else. And we've always taken the notion of really focusing on what's in front of me. As a rugby referee, that's what we're trained to mm. do. We referee the game in front of you, not the test match, the 30 players in front of you. And the same message I often think is we should be focusing on the children, what's best for the children in front of us. So, yeah, sometimes that becomes really difficult in terms of time management. But for me, it's really about thinking what's really important that I need to do. There are some things that, yes, we have to do, and but I'll put some of those things in the back burner because they're less important. And, you know, sometimes you know, that's regretful because I'll get the phone call from someone saying, hey, John, you haven't done this or whatever sort of scenario. But at the same time, um, I think that's where the perspective comes in and I've never lost sleep over the fact of um, missing out deadline or um, not handing something in on time. I'm not encouraging that, by the way, because I think time management's really important. But what I'm saying is that if there was a competition, a choice between two, the children always comes first. For those those sins of late deadlines and misforms, the department absolves you uh, for, for those sins, John, but we want to thank you for your effort and your commitment and your passion on behalf of the students of Maryland's East and all you're teaching the rest of us in education. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you. And thank you for listening to this episode of Every Student. Never miss an episode by subscribing on your podcast platform of choice or by heading to our website at education.nsw.gov.au slash every hyphen student hyphen podcast. Or if you know someone who is a remarkable innovative educator that we could all learn from, you can get in touch with us via Twitter at New South Wales Education, on Facebook, or email everystudentpodcast at det.nsw.edu.au. Thanks again, and I'll catch you next time.